This is an ABC podcast. If you're throwing together a list of influential Australian books, there's going to be one that's always up there. Looking for Alibrandi. If you haven't read it, you've probably seen the movie. A lot of people say it's just as important now as it was when it was written 30 years ago. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, we're going to tell you how this Aussie classic's been rebooted for the 21st century, and we'll speak to Alibrandi's author. Also coming up, the great croc debate, why Queenslanders are fighting over how to live with these prehistoric predators. But first... Hack. This is the biggest thing to happen for the ADHD community in Australia. On Triple J. You know, if you don't have it yourself, you definitely know someone who does. About a million Australians have been diagnosed with ADHD. Many more live with it, but they don't even know. Maybe you've struggled to get your ADHD diagnosed. It was too expensive. People didn't believe you. You can call in 1300-0555-36, send a message as well, 0439-757-555. Well, look, unlike other countries around the world, Australia hasn't had any guidelines around the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD until today. After two years, experts have come up with this big list of directions that they hope is going to go a long way in helping both people with ADHD and medical professionals too. Professor Mark Belgrove is the president of the Australian ADHD Professionals Association. He's been working really hard on all of this and he joins us right now. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. You've been waiting years for this kind of action. More than a million Australians have been diagnosed with ADHD. What kind of difference are these guidelines going to make? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Certainly, I've been waiting a long time and the ADHD community uh, in Australia has uh, certainly been uh, waiting a long time. Look, the uh, this project uh, that we've uh, driven has been a, a large collaborative project right across the, the sector, uh, not just the Australian ADHD Professionals Association, but all the major uh, medical colleges and allied health uh, societies and associations. And really what it puts forward is effectively the best practice uh, for diagnosis and treatment and support of folks with ADHD. So it will be the authoritative resource for those uh, who uh, want to uh, treat ADHD, but importantly also for those who have a lived experience uh, of ADHD and, and want to know what the data says uh, regarding uh, the best ways to treat the condition. And I think for them it'll be an incredibly uh, empowering document. They'll be armed with the best knowledge uh, and the best evidence and they'll be able to make their own choices about uh, the ways in which they go for treatment. Can you talk us through just a couple of the big ones or the most significant ones that you think are going to make a difference? Because there'll be people listening sure. now, young people who have ADHD and are thinking, mm-hmm. oh, what's this going to mean for me? Firstly, with young kids with ADHD sort of in the over five age range, what we're very concerned about is making sure these kids get a good early start to life. So one of the recommendations you'll see is that we recommend that uh, families should be offered parent training and parent support. Uh, And really what that is focusing on is making sure that the family unit uh, is preserved, that the parent-child bond is enhanced and supported as much as possible because what we don't want to happen uh, is for uh, children with ADHD to start off their life having their self-esteem damaged and having a stigma associated uh, with ADHD. So what parent and family training is really all about is doing the best uh, that we can to support those families 
to raise the children within a supporting environment. Yeah. If we uh, look, for example, at perhaps some of the uh, medication-related options, what the evidence would suggest here is, uh, and the recommendation follows from the evidence, is that uh, children and adolescents and adults can all be treated with stimulant medications uh, and that the clinician and the family can really choose whether they start what is called a short-acting or a long-acting uh, medication. And that's important because uh, long-acting medications can give better coverage throughout the day uh, and can be quite important for the kids, uh, for example, within their, within their uh, learning environment. So that is a different recommendation to some uh, international guidelines and that follows from recent international evidence. Uh, so that's uh, quite, a, quite an important one as well. Mark, we know that there's been an increase in people being diagnosed with ADHD later in life as adults, particularly women. Do you reckon we're going to see that increase even more now? Look, I think we've certainly had a rise in uh, ADHD within the media. Uh, that That's a good thing in, in our perspective because it's bringing uh, ADHD to the awareness of the community and it's really uh, correcting an imbalance and it gives us an opportunity to correct many of the uh, misperceptions uh, that are out there. The situation with uh, women, uh, well girls and women, uh, with ADHD is is one area in, in the guideline that we identify as critically needing more data. Your listeners are probably aware that there's a perception, you know, that ADHD is a, a condition that predominantly affects boys. Everyone's, I guess, stereotype of it is a, is a boy, a hyperactive boy. We think that the presentation in girls is probably different. It may lean more towards the inattentive symptoms and that that may mean that girls go undetected through uh, their childhood in terms of uh, their symptoms. Uh, and maybe it's not until they get to uh, either adolescence or adulthood when the demands start to increase that they start to really have difficulties that come to the fore and cause them or lead them to seek out a diagnosis. So we need better data on this. We need better data on the, uh, the longitudinal follow-up of girls into, into becoming women to know about that uh, progression and to look for whether there are you know, different symptom presentations that we really need to be uh, looking out for. But, you know, I think the more awareness raising we do, uh, the more ADHD will continue uh, to become a condition where people are seeking diagnosis. And in our view, that is a good thing because we know diagnosis rates overall in Australia are probably still uh, lower than we would expect based on our expectation of population prevalence data. So at this point, we think that's a good thing. Mark Belgrove from the Australian ADHD Professionals Association. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. You're welcome. Thanks for your interest. And, you know, we're getting a lot of messages on this one. Somebody says, I'm a female psychologist and was only identified with ADHD this year. I'm 28 because other professionals have been unable to identify it. I think the mental health community needs to catch up with identification of ADHD in women. We've got Peter on the line from Cowra. Peter, you've been trying to get a diagnosis today. How's that experience been? Uh, so the doctor I saw today, just the general practitioner, and she seemed to have no awareness of what ADD was. So once I went to the appointment, she started immediately uh, looking up on the computer what ADD and ADHD even was. Yeah, right. Um, and then asking me some really peculiar questions like, do I know what day it is today? And can I count backwards from 99 in nines? 
Yeah, Peter, look, this is something that we're hearing from so many people on the text line about now. Thank you so much for calling up with your experience. I want to talk to someone else who actually knows what it's like to live with ADHD, and it's someone you know pretty well, Abby Butler's from the Triple J Unearthed team. You'll also hear Abby presenting here on Triple J. G'day, Abby. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. When were you diagnosed with ADHD? I was diagnosed earlier this this year in February, so it's pretty recent. It's still pretty new. And what was the process like, like in terms of costs, time, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so it was actually living with my partner that made me realise I should go and get a referral because it was just someone else noticing little patterns and habits that I had that were not just you know, the regular sort of lack of focus or inattentiveness that I think a lot of people had in lockdown, but just an inability to sort of cope with that and and to to live a normal life with it. So after um, that, I went to my GP, she referred me to a psych. um, And then after that first first consultation, um, about a month later, I was tested in person. Um, and that also included like a parental survey that my parents had to fill out. And it was in that consultation that I was diagnosed, yeah, back in February. Okay. And what's it been like since the diagnosis? Has your life changed a lot? I think for me, it was less about uh, sort of combating what I was feeling, but more understanding them, which has been really helpful. And I guess through things like uh, I've done some group sort of psychotherapy sessions with other people living with ADHD, that's been really incredible, but it is super expensive. The total all up has been around $1,000, which I'm very privileged to be able to afford over a, a, you know, span of a year. Um, But it is, yeah, that's, it's, it's a real it's it's so difficult to access. And even as Peter was saying, to get to that point where you are getting a referral to a psych is so difficult and that's just the first step. And you can imagine so many people just don't have access to that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, people with ADHD talk about this sense of relief when getting their diagnosis. Is that something that you felt? Yeah, totally. I started keeping a list in my notes app called Do I Have ADHD or No? And I took that <laughs> to, it was a very extensive list and I took that to my GP and it's sort of been reflecting back on that and realising that these aren't, you know, it's not just laziness or it's not just um, an inability to focus when someone's talking to me, but there's, you know, like a neurological reason for those things is it's, yeah, it it makes it easier to deal with and easier to manage for sure. Well, look, it's something that so many people experience. We appreciate hearing about your story. Triple J presenter, producer Abby Butler, thanks for jumping in and sharing that with us. Thanks, Dave. Hi. Oh, in case you're wondering, this is Tomato Day, or as I like to refer to it, National Wog Day. On Triple J. Yeah, how can you forget that iconic line from a classic Australian movie, Looking for Alibrandi? It was a book first written 30 years ago that really changed things in Australia. It talked about a lot of things important to young Aussies in a way that had never been done before. Youth, class, ethnicity. It's also the story of three generations of Australian women. The book was so influential that it's not only still being studied and analysed by students... It's got the title of the most stolen book from Australian high school libraries. And I think I've got one of those copies, which is a bit awful. But look, it turned into that hit movie, which we just heard a bit of. And even though it has been decades since it was published, Alibrandi still resonates with people of all ages. You might be one of them. What did looking for Alibrandi mean for you? Let me know. 0439757555. Beck, you say, I cry every time she rips up the letter. It had a huge impact on me and understanding the impact of suicide on those left behind. Well, in 2022, it's back. It's got a new life on the stage directed by Stephen Nicolazzo. 
It's kicking off in Sydney and I want to explore this amazing journey and who better to do it with than the author of Looking for Alabrandi, Australian writer Melina Marchetta. Melina, thanks so much for jumping on Hack. Thank you. And saying my name right. So. Oh, don't you worry. I, I, I get it as well. And also the actor playing Josie in the new stage adaptation, Chanella Macri. Hey, Chanella, welcome to Hack. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, it's a pleasure. I'm so excited to speak with you both and I'm so excited to see the play, to talk about this story. It had a huge impact on my life. I'm sure it had a huge impact on so many young Australians' lives. Melina Marqueta, I want to start with you. 30 years since your release, Looking for Ala Brandy, like 30 years ago, could you ever have imagined that you'd still be talking about Josephine Ala Brandy all these years later? Never, never, never. <laughs> um, I always say that if someone had said that to me back then, yeah, I'd just never. Like, there's so many things that it's, I mean, it's shaped my life so much in the last 30 years, where, whether I wanted it shaped or not in that way. But I did, I did at the time, like when it was released, not when I was writing it, when it was released, I did think it had something to say that was powerful and I just, I had that sense of excitement, but definitely not going beyond the next couple of years. Like there was no way that I thought that in 30 years' time I'd be speaking about it. You know, a lot's changed in Australia in that time. When the book came out, there weren't a lot of genuine stories about young people of diverse backgrounds. Italian heritage, Italian culture still considered really different from the mainstream. There was still a lot of prejudice. Now, as someone from an Italian background myself, I feel like Italian culture's almost been adopted by mainstream Australia. Like my friends who aren't from uh, that background are having their own tomato days. And we've got an Italian PM, we've got Anthony Albanese. Melina, do you think the big issues around identity that you were writing about for young people then are still issues for young people now? Yeah, because I think that there's always, I always refer it to as the other, and I think there's always one of those or a group of those, and there's various versions of them. It's not just cultural identity that we're searching for. I think that everyone's kind of lost, not everyone, but a lot of people are lost within their family group, their school group, whether it's got to do with their sexuality. So there's always going to be someone like Josie who's watching the world from the outside. And, you know, as you said, the Italians, there's this part of me that I just can't take on the identity of someone like a person of colour or a person, you know, who is from a non-English speaking background that who is persecuted today. But back then it was real. It was the name calling. When you are treated that way, you don't hate the person treating you that way, you hate yourself. So there was this element of kind of self-loathing um, about who I was and where my place was. So, um, And I think that that never goes away. There's always kind of the next group to do that to. And I think the sad thing is that it's now, you know, I hear sometimes Italian people say something either really racist or really limiting and I think, oh, wow, how can you forget um, the way our parents or our grandparents were treated. So, um, yeah, it's pretty hard in that way. Chanela Macri, I want to get on to you. You're 25. Is that correct? Are you 25? I just turned 26. Oh, 26. <laughs> oh, over the hill, right? Oh, um, all downhill from here. <laughs> you're now playing Josie Alabrandi in mm. this stage production. Did you know much about the character before you took on the role? 
I didn't study it. It was just a little bit before me, but um, I read, my sister has a copy that is from a school library. <laughs> um <laughs> that was was never returned you would think um but i i had read i read it when i was like 14 or 15 i read her copy of it and i of course saw the movie you know by the time i was coming up it was such an iconic story yeah it's easy to say that there's probably no more loved kind of australian heroine out there that must be so daunting to take that on and (laughs) make it your own right like do you say holy shit where do i start with this it it is like it's just yeah it, it was a massive thing um and I've said it a few times now but I remember when Stephen approached me for it at first I was like mm, nah like that's just I've got a very um political body when it's on stage or on screen quite big I'm um my father's European my mother's from the Pacific um so I'm like you know it's just a, a very politicized body and I had a because I grew up with the idea of with an idea of Josie and with an idea of looking for Brandy, I was like, oh, that's not a good idea. Like, I was like, Stephen, Stephen's always pushing boundaries, always doing things he shouldn't be doing. I was like, don't, don't go there, Stephen. That's not a good idea. I would get stopped constantly by people being like, you're doing our Brandy. You're, oh, you got your guys are adapting our Brandy. And I'm told, just like stopped on the spot and told stories about how this book and Josie had changed people's lives. And so then, so then it sort of kept on adding and adding this sort of um, the responsibility of, of doing, doing uh, Josie and doing Looking for Brandy justice because of just how much it meant to people on a really, like a really personal level. When people stop you and talk to you about it, it's, you know, it's like they're talking about themselves and and, and their family and they that's how much they identify with um, the book. You talk about your own identity, background, you have Italian heritage yourself, you're also half Samoan. Mm. Mm. That brings a whole new level to this character, Josie. How much do you reckon your Samoan backgrounds influence the way you tell this story? Hugely, like, you know, in the way that all the facets of who I am, it's the way that I uh, prefer to live and prefer to act, um, sort of influence the work that I'm doing. So, so, so massively in the way that it is who I am. Um, but there's not been any sort of rewriting or like adapting of onto the story, um, my like Samoan heritage or anything like that. But it's very, it was very intentional by Stephen, Stephen Nicolazzo, who's the director, in terms of adapting this story to to do an adaptation justice. So to bring it into 2022, to look at the face of diversity now, as we were talking about, to look at the face of immigration, who the other is now. And he was very clear with me that he he wanted me playing Josie to, to allow the full complexity and multitudes of identity that can occur in any single person. How different is it to the book? Like, is it still set in the 1990s or is Josie kicking around on TikTok these days? <laughs> Certainly not. Stephen Nicolato would never have any of that. It is um, definitely still set in the 90s. Like, it, it's a true adaptation or retelling. So it is It is the story you know and love. Uh, all the characters are there. Stephen uh, Nicolato and, and Vidya, the playwright, have gone to great lengths to make sure that it feels like looking for Alla Brandy if that makes sense. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese chatting to actor Chanel Macri, who's starring in a new theatre adaptation of Looking for Alla Brandy and the author of the original book, Melina Marchetta. It's been 30 years since it was released and we're getting so many messages through. 
Melina Marquetta, sometimes when writers have a big success with a book, they feel like maybe it can overshadow other really big works. Like you've written so many great books. Do you ever get really annoyed with Alabrandi, a little bit pissed off? Like Triple J, you're still banging on about that one. Like what's your relationship with the story now, do you think? And how's it changed over the years? Well, it, it's its own animal. Like it, it, I, I feel as if actually I could put all my um, work into different categories, but it was its only child for 11 years. So I think that was the hardest time because everyone would say, write another one, write the sequel. We love what you did with it. And I thought, but I just actually didn't know what I did with it. It was certainly written from the heart. And I, have, I haven't had a love-hate relationship with it but I, I think it's been a tiny bit of an antagonistic relationship with it in the probably more in the earlier days. But it's just, it's, it's changed my life. Like when I think of, you know, the book came out and, no, the book was going to come out and I thought if I can get a book published, then I can go to university. So I went to university when I was 25 and, you know, I went into teaching and it just opened a different world to me. So I just think the opportunities, like even... Up till today, just the opportunities that I'm getting with writing, with script writing, with movies, films, it's just all comes down to that book. And um, I have to embrace it. I have to stop thinking that it's my most flawed work because I think anyone's first work is their most flawed. But I suppose the, the worst moment with Ella Brundy is that I had to teach it for the HSC back in the 90s. Wow. That kind of crushed it a bit. Um, I mean, imagine having Melina as your high school teacher going through that. I mean, that would have been a pretty cool experience. I'd say, no, actually, that's not what I meant when I wrote that. Oh, no, no. They were, and it was, I I taught boys. And so they were, um, I think it was a great experience for them to have, you know, the writer in the classroom and she's not dead or male, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing. You know, Chanel was saying this year, especially, like, I don't think I've ever stopped being asked about Ella Brundy, but this year people have told me their stories. Mm. And, you know, it's just um, I feel as if certain people who I've met in the last couple of years who I'm really close to, they they kind of say to people I've known her for 30 years because when they read that book they just felt that they didn't just know Josie but they knew me and we met all these years later and it was almost like this instant you know, I don't know, connection. So, um, but, yeah, I just hear so many beautiful stories yeah. and I can't, how can you resent a book that has provided such solace, you know, to other people? So, um, yeah, I think it's just how people feel about their first big hit. Have you reread the book? Um, I haven't really reread it since I taught it. <laughs> I was saying the other day that when you've marked some really awful um, essays of your work, it kind of kills it. But more than anything, because I think in the early days, especially when I was writing the film script, I had to constantly reread it. So I think I've read that first book more than I've read any of my other books. But I just, um, I was, I will read it again. And I have an almost 11-year-old daughter and I want us in a couple of years to read it together because I found that a lot of, young women I mean I'm not sure if the young boys did but I know of a lot of young girls who read it with their mum and I just want to have that experience with her so um, I'll be ready for that and I definitely will open the pages with her. 
Well, look, I don't have to sell Looking for Alabrandi to anyone. It's an Australian classic. It's got a new life on the stage. It was in Melbourne. Now it's in Sydney. So go and see it if you can. Actor Chanel Macri, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And Australian writer Melina Marchetta, it was so nice to chat. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And looking for Alabrandi, the play, it's underway at Sydney's Belvoir Street Theatre now. If you can't get to Sydney, though, it's all good. You can read a whole lot more about it online. And so many messages are coming through on this. It really hits all these years later with a whole group of people across generations. We've got Gab in Wotherong Country saying, I just presented looking for Alabrandi to my book club. Our group all studied it at high school will forever be a favourite. Somebody else says, I just reread looking for Alabrandi last week. Studied it for my HSC. It was life-changing on so many levels. Can't wait to watch it on the stage at the theatre this month. Thank you for talking about this amazing book on Hack. Another person who read it just a couple of years ago in year nine says, the book and movie are still my favourite now. It means so much to me having a single mother and going to a Catholic girls school in Australia. I felt identified with the characters. And another person says, I'm a first generation Australian from Calabrian heritage. This was such a true expression of the Australian-Italian cultural combination. It was so empowering to see your experience in a social context. I can't agree with you more or put it better than that. Hack. I've dedicated my life to conserving and managing crocodile species throughout the world. On Triple J. The saltwater crocodile. One of the gnarliest predators out there, right? Like, think about it. And it's one of the things about living in Australia, living with these kinds of prehistoric predators, and even though attacks are rare, there is still this constant debate in croc country about how to manage living with crocs. But a new plan to remove more large crocodiles from Queensland's populated far north coast has been slammed by experts. They say it might actually put more people at risk. Serge Negus has this story from far north Queensland. Shiver my timbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's tasseled. Dinosaur. There's only half of them you can see there, too. There's a lot, lot of his tail. You can't see any of his tails under the water. The tail's Hi, uh, my name's David White, and I own and operate uh, Solar Whisper Wildlife Cruises up on the Danger River. And I uh, take people out on my electric powered uh, boat and show them the wildlife, including crocodiles. And I have been doing that for uh, 25 years working on the river. Crocs are one of the biggest attractions on David's tour, and it's safe to say he both loves and respects them. Yeah, I love crocodiles. They're amazing creatures. They're nature's perfection. They haven't needed to evolve millions of years. They got it right a long, long time ago. And I just love taking people out in the boat and showing them the world's largest living reptile in their natural habitat. So I think they're awesome. And uh, they do have a, a big economic benefit to this area. David spent a lot of his life teaching people about how to be safe in croc country. But now, he's super concerned about a new proposal to the Queensland Government's Crocodile Management Program. I'm a bit worried about this. Uh, It, to me, seems like a cull. The proposal comes from an independent review led by the state's former chief scientist, Professor Hugh Possingham, commissioned by the government in response to an increase in the croc population with the idea of keeping people safe. But David reckons the proposal to kill more crocs could actually make things more dangerous. I'm worried about it because it's the one under the water. The one you don't see is the one you have to worry about. 
it can make it more dangerous by removing the large crocodile from a swimming spot because everyone thinks it's safe. Yeah, and David's not alone. An online petition has amassed over 1,500 signatures from people who are worried that this proposal is actually a silent cull. Professor Craig Franklin from the University of Queensland runs the world's largest and longest-running study of crocodiles. And he also thinks the proposal could make things less safe for people. The option is to educate people to live alongside and to say these are an amazing species that deserves our respect and our protection instead of culling them to the extent that that's being proposed. And what is being proposed is, in essence, not just control, but an eradication strategy. So if you're going to remove every animal over 2.4 metres, you essentially will create a non-viable breeding population for that river system. He reckons that the government would be better off educating the public to the realities of living with crocs, rather than trying to reduce the number of animals. Crocodiles can travel tens of kilometres in a day. They can move from river system to river system. So ensuring the safety of people would mean you'd need to monitor for long periods of time, constantly, to ensure safety. It's, it's just not possible. My concern is that it's going to lead people to a false sense of security and a degree of complacency, thinking, gee, the Queensland government, they've got rid of all the large animals, it's OK to go swimming in this waterhole. That's not a good idea. Dr Matt Bryan is the Program Coordinator for Northern Wildlife Operations at the Queensland Department of Environment and Sciences. It's his job to oversee the management of crocs in the state and implement these proposed changes if the government decides to go ahead with them. It is important to clarify, at this point the department's made no decision to uh, change the management uh, approach. The proposal was made by the committee, uh, currently we are, uh, we are considering it and we're doing that by undertaking uh, some population modelling to look at what impact the removal of more animals may have on the population bearing in mind that we do want to ensure that long-term conservation. David also says that it definitely isn't a cull being proposed. It's same as what we're doing before. There's no proposal to kill any more animals than what we currently do, which is only a very small percentage. Government figures show that currently, less than 1% of crocodiles removed through the program are actually killed. If the proposal uh, does lead to a change or increase, then there's no proposal to change the way we remove animals they will continue to be uh, mostly placed in, in farms and zoos. He also says that increasing populations of crocs and humans inevitably leads to more attacks, which is why they need to remove some animals. There is uh, a lot of evidence out there to show that reducing the, the size and number of crocodiles in and around urban centres can reduce the chance of an attack. And Matt reckons the argument that removing the big crocs will actually make it more dangerous just doesn't stack up. The short answer to that one is we've removed about five to 600 crocodiles over the last sort of 10 years. And that removal has demonstrably reduced the average size of crocodiles in that area. And we know that from the monitoring program. So we've already seen the consequences of the current program at work. And the fact that we haven't had an increase in fatalities during that period could be directly attributed to that in the sense that if you've got less big crocodiles, you've got less chance that there'll be a fatality. Hack on Triple J. 
Serge Negus with that story. A few comments coming through. Someone says, cull the croc, the shoe, if you must, but leave the crocodiles out of this. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to Serge Negus for that special report into crocs and everybody else, the Alabrandi interview, our talk on ADHD. We've had so much feedback on that. It's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.